Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Is there anyone who doesn't love Nora Ephron? Not in my world. I can't believe it's been 11 years since she died, much too soon, from leukaemia, depriving us of her wit and wisdom in films like When Harry Met Sally and You've Got Mail and her adaptation of the book Julie and Julia, as well as her short pieces on every aspect of her life, which she mined and polished into sparkling gems of memoir. I go back to the essays in her collection, I Worry About My Neck, and marvel at how she could be simultaneously frivolous and profound, and how she understood friendship and romance from both male and female points of view. Everything she wrote was infused with her love of New York, or at least her New York, white, Jewish, privileged. Since Nora died, her son Jacob has made a wonderful documentary about her called Everything is Copy. More recently, a new biography by Christine Margaret Deutsch tells the story of her larger-than-life parents, her marriage to Carl Bernstein, which resulted in the revenge novel Heartburn, and her rise to fame in Hollywood. It is filled with anecdotes and industry gossip from interviews with friends and colleagues and paints a picture of a woman who managed to hide a steely core of ambition in a black cashmere turtleneck. I spoke to Christine via Zoom at her home in Los Angeles, where she's a marriage and family therapist as well as a writer, a good combination for someone with Nora as their subject. I wanted to ask you about the challenges of writing this biography because there's the documentary by her son, Everything is Copy, and that had a lot of material in it and great access, of course. Mm -hmm. There have also been several other books about Nora. So how did you decide on the way you wanted to tell the story in a way that was different from that very personal one that her son tells? Where did you decide to place your emphasis? Yes, there are some wonderful other books. And I started this process before some of them had been published. So this was 2014. This was before the documentary came out. It was it was a it was a master's thesis at first and I was curious about her stance on love and relationships from a from a scholarly perspective. What would she have to say, you know, given the changes and how we come together as couples. And so that was kind of what was on my mind in 2014. I was also in journalism school, so I was becoming a journalist myself. I was very, very curious about her kind of former life as a journalist. I didn't know much about that. There really wasn't a ton of writing about it. And, you know, she had just passed away in 2012. So she, you know, really was still very present, I think, for the people who knew her. I remember speaking early on with Richard Cohen, who's a longtime Washington Post columnist and and dear friend of hers. And he at the time was starting to conceptualize what would have been what he thought would be a biography about Nora. But yeah, I think really having that female perspective and also a journalist curiosity, that was really what what drove the the project. But I think you also provide some really interesting and valuable context in terms of emphasis on women screenwriters in the Hollywood milieu, who were her partners, who were her champions, how projects got up. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting aspect, the whole kind of collaborative culture that she was so good at and and that she thrived in. Yeah, absolutely. And, And again, there are some really wonderful books that I have on my shelf here that I got to read um, one that's coming to mind is The Women Who Write the Movies by Marcia McCready. And she had gotten to interview Nora 
which I unfortunately didn't get to do before she passed. So that was written in the 90s. And like you said, just really this idea of how they were coming together and building on each other's work and, you know, making these things happen when it was so hard to do so and still is, you know, it's really kind of amazing that any of these movies actually made it to the screen. And I know Nora liked to say she had so many others that she wanted you know, to be made, lots of screenplays that were unproduced. And I did get to talk to some of her collaborators about that, you know, like, would we ever get to see some of these? And I, I really hope we do, because it's just amazing to imagine these, you know, what she described as closet full of screenplays that were like, we never got to see these. So, yeah. Oh, my God, I hope so, too. Listen, I, I mentioned there that you've got some delicious details in the book. And one of them that I really love is you say that she had a portrait of mafia boss John Gotti above her desk. Why was it there? She thought he was fearless. She loved people who were fearless. And speaking of, there's a great story. I don't think it's in the book, but Don Lee had told me about this time she was at Rouse, the uh, Italian joint in New York, very hard to get into. There's only like three or four tables. And one of these guys was smoking his cigar and she kind of turned around and made a face and he put it out and he said, I would, I've never seen a person <laughs> do something like that in a crowd like that. That's like pretty, you know. Pretty intense. So, uh, yeah. What, you mean she was at a table near a mafia boss and she asked him to sort of, she glared at him so that he put out his cigar. That's right. That's right. Right. <laughs> because that's Nora, you know, she's fearless. And so, yeah, I think she just, she just admired that in people. It is an interesting choice of a photograph to have above your desk as, as your as you know as part of your kind of creative mood board. I mean, admittedly, <laughs> Nick Pelagi, her husband, was steeped in the culture of mafia bosses when he was writing Goodfellas, working with Martin Scorsese. But I still think it's an interesting choice. Now, in your acknowledgments, you say that it was the first time that some people spoke publicly about Nora. Can you give me an example of who that might be and and why they might not have spoken about her before? Mm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So someone who comes to mind, I mentioned Don Lee, he's he's definitely been hesitant to do a lot of interviews. He's in Jacob's documentary, as you mentioned. But who is he? He's a producer. He worked on a number of her films, including Julie and Julia, and also makes a cameo in You've Got Mail. He's in uh, Fox Books, if you look closely. He, like pretty much everyone who knew and worked with and loved Nora, again, still feel a lot of grief. And so there's grief, there's fear of, you know, talking about her when she's not here to make sure, did I say it correctly? Did I capture you? All of that. So I felt very honored that a lot of those people were willing to talk. There were others who weren't, and I also respected that. But what, someone who comes to mind is Willow Lindley. And she was, I know you had, you and I had spoken a little bit about Lena Dunham. She was another person who was very much mentored by Nora. And when I was speaking, she's the daughter of the cinematographer, John Lindley. He did You've Got Mail and Michael, among others with Nora. And he was a cinematographer on Field of Dreams, which was part of how they came together. She just, she just thought that was wonderful. And he has this daughter, Willow, and she kind of came along on you know, the set and was getting to interact with Nora. And like most people who interacted with Nora, they became sort of lifelong friends. And she sort of 
broke down into tears talking to me. You know, she said, this is one of the first times I've really talked about her since she died. And this was a couple of years ago, you know, so this is 10 years that people are holding this, you know, and again, like that, just that relief of getting to share her while also keeping, keeping what was so sacred about what you had when she was alive, you know? And so, Mm. yeah, it was really special. I don't know if I answered the question, but I think... uh, Well, no, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I did ask you in an email when I contacted you about the fact that Lena Dunham or Lena Dunham was not one of the people that you quoted. And and, I mean, she was famously mentored by Mm -hmm. Nora. Was she someone who turned you down or what happened there? No, unfortunately, with a lot of these, again, just going over four or five, six decades of work across so many different genres and industries. I tried to cast a really wide net. Of course, with Hollywood, you're never quite sure with the gatekeepers who is getting the message and who isn't, who is just flat out declining by not answering or who is, you know, sometimes you get a polite no thank you or a, you know, you should talk to so-and-so, that kind of thing. So it it just kind of depends. But with her, I, I don't think I heard anything back, which was a bummer. I I really wanted to talk to some of this kind of next generation, you know, of producers, writers, directors, journalists who had been mentored by her. And again, many of them did talk to me, which I was thankful for. And then there were also some like Mindy Kaling. Also, I never was able to get through with, with her people, if you will. So I was very grateful. I was able to get through with Tom Hanks. I was able to get through with Martin Short and also with Caroline Aaron, all of whom worked very closely with Nora, were dear, dear friends. And so, yeah, they had wonderful stories. They do. They really do. I'm just wondering, as a biographer, whether you found, though, I mean, you've mentioned the pent-up grief there mm-hmm. that, that someone released in talking to you. When someone is as widely generally loved as she was, and the death is still relatively recent, so we're talking about a decade. Do you find that in the interim, people's memories have been so burnished by their nostalgic kind of sentiment and affection for Nora, that part of your job as the biographer is to unburnish those memories a bit? Do you have to try and strip away some of that emotional patina to get to the harder truths? Hmm. I don't know if that's the role of the biographer. It's a great question. Um, I mean, did you find that, you know, what people said to you in interviews, for example, was so warmly, effusively positive that did you have to say to people, was there a flip side to that? You know, what else can you tell me that's not quite so loving because what I like about your portrait of Nora is that you do capture her toughness. She had this extraordinary warmth and generosity and expansiveness and enthusiasm, but there was steel at the core of that woman. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I think I'm trying to think of a, a an eloquent way of saying this. Yeah, that came through. Absolutely. Like you said, the, the as as much as there was so much love and admiration for her she was she was feared by some she was very much revered a lot of people expressed feeling quite lost when she left us because they relied on her guidance you know to to make decisions to make script revisions to pursue something and so i felt like that came through And I appreciate you saying that because it is hard 
because she is someone who was beloved. And I felt very strongly that the biography that we, myself included as a fan, wants to read about Nora is about the truth and it's also about the love, you know? And so there were times where there were very painful memories that did linger and whether or not it made sense to include those, you know, that was a judgment call between myself and my editor. But yeah, there's still there's still some pain. Yeah, there's some pain. Yeah, I think yeah. I think it does come through. Well, let's talk. I mean, generally, the origin of pain is usually to do with family. Let's talk about her family because she grew up in a very unusual background, which prepared her for her career in the sense that both of her parents were very successful Hollywood writers, but also they were alcoholics. Can you talk a little bit about the family background and Nora's evolving relationship with Phoebe and Henry? Sure. Nora was the oldest of four girls. And as you mentioned, her parents were, by the time she was born or at least aware of things, they were very successful screenwriters. They were New York transplants. They were playwrights who had kind of begun to dabble in what was still somewhat new, which was writing for the screen with dialogue. And there's a very cute story in Henry's memoir that, you know, he talks about getting this first job writing for the screen and they both are looking at each other like neither of us know how to write for the screen, but I guess we'll figure it out by tomorrow. So they were on contract, uh, under contract with 20th Century Fox by all accounts, again, we're just doing really well. You know, there there were those glorious years that Nora liked to talk about of kind of the wonderful dinners and the happy times and the laughter and the music and the parties. Her parents loved to throw parties. People would be at the piano. They'd be singing. They'd sort of sneak out in their PJs and look over the banister and see, you know, Dorothy Parker in their, you know, living room. So I think they really loved those times. And then it sort of turned, you know, it, it it became very dark around the time that she was 14, particularly because her mother was very, very depressed and drinking and her father was sort of having affairs and just not present. And that was hard to square for her because she admired her parents so much, especially her mom. And yet she had become this person that was really not the person she knew. So her way of coping was to, you know, write comedy, <laughs> which is what her parents taught her. And, and it's such a beautiful thing because it's not just about resilience. It is about also coming to terms with what is the truth and does it matter as much as the good story does, you know? So really they were taught from a young age, the good story is what matters whether or not the truth is in there is like up for debate kind of a thing, which is super interesting from a biographer's perspective, because I mentioned her father's memoir, which I think she said was about 5% of it was accurate. So you kind of have to take everything with a grain of salt. But then again, that's that's life. You know, like you said, people's memories are not necessarily accurate. We weren't there in the room. So we have to kind of like guess as best we can about what happened. So Phoebe gave Nora an invaluable piece of advice, which has been quoted, misquoted, possibly attributed to somebody else. Was it everything is copy? What What was the exact phrase that Phoebe passed on to Nora that became kind of the mantra for her life? 
Yes. Apropos to our last sort of discussion there, what Nora heard was everything is copy. And she really took that to heart. What that meant to her was anything that happens to you, good or bad, is material. So go ahead and use it. And her parents started doing that again as playwrights that their very first hit was about Nora as a baby. So her life was already material from the again from the time she was two and three years old. That was their first Broadway hit called Three's a Family. So that was what she grew up with was notice the things that are happening to you. If they're sad, don't cry about it, write about it, you know, and write it funny if you can. And so Write it funny. That's that right. was that was another key line. And of course, Phoebe, is it true or do you think it's apocryphal that when Phoebe was dying, she said to Nora, who was by her bedside, take notes, i.e. even this, even this moment is basically material that you can use? I think so. It's so interesting, though, because Delia talks about feeling like her role was to hold the family secrets, you know, that, that, that her conversation with her mother at that time was, we don't talk about this, like this is not to be talked about or written about. So it brings up that idea of, you know, whose story is it and who gets to tell it? And yeah, so it's super interesting. Yeah. But do you, do you think that Phoebe would have been the sort of woman, she strikes me as the sort of woman, who might have said to her daughter, are you paying attention to this moment because this could be useful? Oh, absolutely. And, it, and it's interesting, too, because Nora's reaction was she was somehow able to know what I was already thinking, you know, that that was already in her mind of this is so awful and horrible. And yet I'm already writing it in my head as to how to understand it, you know. I want to come back to the tension with Delia in a moment, because, of course, they were very close. They collaborated, but that obviously also had its hiccups. But there was something else I wanted to ask you that just occurred to me. Did Nora ever write? I, I'm trying to think about this as I ask you. Did Nora ever write any scenes that featured or included alcoholics? Did she ever write characters who bore that resemblance to her parents when they were intoxicated and at their worst? The closest thing that comes to mind would be from Delia's novel, Hanging Up, which was made into a film, where the mother in this version leaves. So it feels like that was the best she could do as far as like this mother, because it's about their life, really. It's about their parents. And Walter Matthau, you know, plays Henry, a version of Henry. And yeah, the, the mother has gone off to California to, I think, Tahoe or something. And, and, you know, just basically was like, I wasn't meant to be a mother, you know, isn't isn't there for them. Like, that's kind of the takeaway for me is was and, and honestly about so many of her her films. The more you watch them, you're like, oh, it's about Phoebe. You know, it was really about her trying to reconcile and figure out like what happened where did she go and, and how can I keep her close when I'm mad at her and that kind of thing, particularly in Michael. So like you said, it wouldn't be so explicit as to be about an alcoholic necessarily, but the idea of coming home, you know, the character is called Dorothy. It's about Wizard of Oz, which was her favorite book series that her mother had given her. And so you just start to notice and realize you're like, ah, oh, it's about it's about her mom. Yeah. 
Okay, that's really interesting because you do say in the book that Nora said that The Wizard of Oz was an influence on all her films. Mm. And I'm really interested in that because I didn't spot it. (laughs) So can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think again, it's it's from both the 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 subtle and also the very like in your face, you know, the use of over the rainbow and a number of her films comes to mind. There's a, a tiny moment that you wouldn't notice unless you're just totally obsessed. And you've got mail where she's sort of taking out little red slippers, a little ornament to put on the tree in the window. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, it's just there. And again, like just Michael, so interesting because it's not her material, but as she and uh, Delia adapted it from from these other writers, they they made it their own as they always did. And so, yeah, she is always talking about going home and, you know, no place like like that whole like kind of idea is kind of ingrained in the film. Later on, Jane Austen is another great love. But I wondered whether you thought that the sort of social comedy of manners of Jane Austen was actually an influence. I know that she reread Pride and Prejudice once a year. I know that her mother also loved Jane Austen. But do you think that Jane Austen was an actual influence on Nora or just a great love? Oh, I absolutely think, it. it yes, uh, she was a, a, a huge influence on Nora. I think that yeah, absolutely. I think You've Got Mail is the best example that comes to mind as far as just like bringing that in. I think that she really loved literature and she loved books. So whether it was a, an amalgamation of, you know, again, the sort of Oz series of books, not just Wizard of Oz, but the series of books or the the kinds of things that she was being exposed to through her parents' screenwriting, all of that. I also think about what I think is so interesting from her formative years is the influence of Broadway and musicals and like that idea too of it being colorful and kind of bright and and glossy, you know, and how she was somewhat criticized for that, you know, like how can you be edgy and glossy at the same time? And and again, when you when you look back at her life, you think, okay, she was always a performer. You know, she's she's on stage at these Friday night shows at at Camp Tokoloma every summer, absolutely just making everyone crack up. You know, so you're like, that's really who she is. Her edgy writing as a journalist, like, is still part of that persona. So once you kind of can see it all big picture wise, I think it's really interesting. Like you said, there's just so many influences and then, and likewise, she's influenced so many things that we don't even necessarily know or, or realize or recognize. There was a, a, a Twitter sort of trending thing the other day, which was about your favorite rom-com. And people were talking about when Harry met Sally and people were also talking about the five-year engagement, which was written co-written and directed by Nick Stoller. Well, Nick was mentored by Nora. So, you know, again, you're like, I'm, again, you hate to be that annoying person who's like, there's always a Nora reference, but there is, like, there's always some link. It's so interesting. Well, and I mean, it is clear that you are also a fan, a big time fan, Kristen, because you do make a very big claim. You say that When Harry Met Sally is the greatest rom-com of all time. And I thought to myself, well, now, just a moment. (laughs) What about Bringing Up Baby? I would put Bringing Up Baby up there too. Absolutely. But to your point about the Jane Austen question, because she drew on these early influences, you know, the 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 talkies, the the banter back and forth, replacing the like, you know, physical physical relationship, like 
that's why we feel so connected to her is because she she did bring that timelessness, you know, of like the classics and bringing things from literature and and the golden age of Hollywood in. And, and, and that kind of brings us to that other question that you sometimes get asked, which is like, who is the Nora Ephron today? The answer is there is no Nora Ephron today. You know, she came from such a specific era and then was sort of ushered in in real time, you know, as things were changing in the United States for women and, you know, all over the world. And that just made for a really interesting life and a really interesting person to document it. Yeah. Absolutely. I I want to come back to Delia for a moment. In the dynamics of the family, this very creative and ambitious family, was it always tacitly accepted that there was room for more than one daughter to shine? Was Delia encouraged and nurtured the way Nora was? was? Was there competition between them, do you think, growing up? I mean, obviously, they were very close. Obviously, they worked together later. But I just wondered how Delia made room for herself? Interesting question. I think she absolutely, from the time she was born, adored her older sister, admired her older sister. And I think they worked really well together, like you said. I think they have different strengths. Nora really relied on Delia to write about kids with such hilarious grace and... I I think that when you read Henry's memoir, it very much comes across that when it was just Nora and Delia, they were, you know, everything to their parents, especially their father. He took them to, you know, the studio lot all the time, loved to, he thought they were the most hilarious, brilliant people. And I and I hope that all four girls felt that. I also know as one of four. <laughs> that you do get different parents, you know, it is true. And unfortunately, because of the circumstances changing with her parents and their, their illness, they, Nora got the best of them, you know, and that wasn't her fault, but it was definitely the reality. And so I think for Delia, you know, finding her way as a writer, just as, as, as much for her other sisters, Hallie and Amy, I think, I think it, 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 once you realize how big Nora's personality is, you can see how hard it must have been to try to find who am I in this family, like you said. I, I would like to think that they were all, I think they were all very much encouraged and supported, but I think that Nora, by virtue of her, who she is <laughs> and being the oldest, I think she just sort of took over, you know, and she did that her whole life. So that that's one of those again, moments of some people love that and some people really didn't care for that. What was Delia like to talk to for you? I didn't get to talk to Delia for the book, unfortunately. She was one of those who obviously I would have loved to have gotten to talk to. She, through her representative, you know, like sort of politely declined, said she would like to read the book. I think it's still it's still hard. It's hard to, again, be a collaborator on a lot of projects that are called Nora Ephron projects when they're really Nora mm. and Delia Ephron projects, you know. And she has a wonderful book that she wrote about, you know, how her life has been since Nora died called Left on 10th. That's that's really amazing and she's again like wonderful writer in her own right. So it's 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 always challenging to go to someone and say I admire you. And also, can you tell me about your sister? It's like, yeah. <laughs> you, you can imagine her whole life has been, I'm sure, like that. It, it must feel like at times. So it's tricky. I think, again, 
this was the first biography. So I also felt like maybe people, I'm hoping people will open up more, but it was also, I just had to respect everyone's wishes as best I could. So there were creative differences between Delia and Nora over her book, Hanging Up, which they then made into a film. They didn't speak for several months. What brought them back together? Can you remember the, what the reconciliation trigger was? Hmm. That's a great question. I don't know if we know that. I think... Maybe it was just the passage of time, but I do remember thinking, I was quite shocked actually when you mentioned that Nora did not go to her father's funeral. I thought that was pretty brutal. Hmm. Yeah, part of the Efren family lore is that Henry was also a complicated character, just like Phoebe was. He was likely bipolar. They did not diagnose it as that back then. They called him sort of manic, uh, manic, manic depressant. There's some stories of physical abuse. There are stories about, again, the kind of adultery and philandering and all of that. So I think for Nora, it was very complicated, you know, when it came to mm. his later years. And that was a that was really what the that wasn't a creative difference. It was very much a personal difference between the the siblings. Delia, you know, put it that, you know, Nora thought it was my problem, mine and Amy's to solve, and she was going to write a check and whatever he needed, she was there for, but she didn't want to have any part of it. And so I don't know. And and Nora's journey to understand again her her mother, I don't know if she felt like it was a betrayal. Or if it was just simply she didn't, you know, if she didn't want to deal with something, you know, she spoke a lot about denial and it just, it just wasn't, it was a non, a non thing. And so, yeah, it's pretty tough to understand. Yeah. Let's move to another part of her life that's obviously important and that she uses, she plunders successively later on. Why was the year, the class of 62 at Wellesley, so important to her? She went to this very good Ivy League school. She made a lot of friends there. She wrote about them later. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I was so fortunate I had the opportunity to get to speak to a number of the women who were in the class of 62 all together, some of whom are sadly no longer with us. So I feel really, really fortunate about that. She felt very much like they were on the cusp, you know, of change, that 62 was still this kind of coming out of the 50s, you know, like sort of everything's just bland and vanilla and we're not really questioning things. That frustrated her. And that was her perception, which, of course, was not accurate at all. All of these women are very, very accomplished and or have families or both and and very intentionally. So many of them still feel hurt by that mischaracterization. And what they're referring to is a piece that she wrote when she went to the 10-year reunion in 1972 that she wrote for Esquire. And she felt that Wellesley, the institution, also had a responsibility to be, you know, pushing opportunities forward for women and, and again, questioning 
all kinds of injustice, not just gender-based, but, you know, also, you know, racial barriers, you know, sexual orientation, things like that. So there's a whole interesting internal discussion at Wellesley about what to do about that piece, you know, and with her classmates too, because what part of what she, part of part of how she ruffled feathers as as she did was she was reporting on the goings on at the reunion that people didn't necessarily know were on the record. So she felt like that was all fair game. Marcia <laughs> explained to me that she was overseas at the time working for the UN when Nora sent her the draft of the article. And she's like, you can't publish this. And she's like, it's too late. And so she was like, that's going to rub some people the wrong way. And so typically when they came back for reunions after that, the question was, Nora, are you reporting on this? Are you on the record? And she would kind of, you know, do like a, you know, hmm, not sure, you know, <laughs> be careful. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's Nora. And she, again, felt like it was fair game. And if it made a good story, you know, that's that's good material. Very interesting to ask them about her coming back in 96 to give her famous speech at Wellesley. Because again, Wellesley was in a position where they're like, this is someone who really loved her time here, was very successful, is successful now. How do we cope with her criticisms, you know, kind of a thing. So yeah, they weren't they weren't fans as much of her her speech in 96 as as maybe I am. But again, she was really trying to get at the point of we were all part of the old regime trying to move into the 60s and 70s, which brought about a lot of change. So, But I wonder how, Kristen, you would characterize her feminism because she is quite paradoxical in some ways. So she's a collaborator, but she's not a joiner. As far as the women's movement is concerned, she seems to have found it pretty humorless, but she was a feminist in how she lived and worked. So can you talk a bit about that? Sure. I, I was thinking about this before we, we started our, our chat today because she she is a really interesting person full of contradictions. And I think that's part of what makes her so interesting. She definitely felt like the way you live, the the person you are, what you do, you know, venturing into, you know, territory usually run by men, like that is what makes you a feminist. We don't need to talk about it. We don't need to question it. We don't need to have special panels regarding women in film. It's literally just, I'm in film. And so, again, you can see how for some people, it it takes away the part of, you know, just that that understanding of, like, it is really hard. You know, like, she she kind of was one of those people who's like, it is hard, but let's do it anyway. You know, <laughs> what what's your problem? Like, let's just, you know, and so for some people, it's like, okay, you're sort of ignoring, you know, the kind of underlying, you know, challenges for some people. So, but that that was, again, that's how she was raised. You know, I think her parents definitely explained to her, especially Phoebe, you can do whatever you want, you know, so work hard and study and go for it kind of a thing. She was a contemporary of Joan Didion and Susan Sontag. Did they dismiss her as a lightweight? Oh, I don't think so. No, I, I think, I think, think probably the opposite. I think that's one of the parts of her legacy that I wish more had been written about and I hope more will be in the future. She was right there alongside them, good friends. I know with Joan Didion and and I think with Susan Sontag as well. 
But again, you know, I was teaching a literary journalism course a few years ago, and and many of the compilations or collections are, of course, very male-centric. You know, you have Tom Wolfe, you have, you know, Truman Capote, you have these writers who, again, very much were part of the movement, if not were, you know, leading the charge. But the point is the women were too. And that was another part that she, she's so contrarian that she would never cop to that that was a <laughs> what she was doing that she was in new journalism and that that was a new thing her thing was I've always written like that what's what's your point so kind of interesting you know kind of the idea of the first person narrative and and that sort of thing but I just wonder Kristen whether you think that somewhere along the line she you know to use the terms that we use today that she was living in a bubble and that the bubble was one of enormous white privilege. And when I look at her body of work, I mean, I may be making a significant omission here, so please correct me, but her work does look incredibly white. Mm. No, it's, it's very, it's very true. Absolutely. I think, again, it's, it's hard to know what she would have done since then. Not that we need to know that in order to, to make it all okay. But I do wish she was here, you know, to talk about that. You know, we look at we look at Seinfeld differently now. We look at Friends differently now. Just two New York kind of based stories coming to mind. So yeah, it is. It's tough. I think she, you know, it brings up kind of this idea of you know her Jewishness too, which again was an area of, you know, maybe friction for some. If you look at her early reporting, she definitely was at least asking questions that other people weren't. They, the Wellesley women were very proud of reporting on their Malcolm X visit to campus. He had written them a letter saying, you're one of the only college newspapers that gave fair coverage. She wanted to know why all of the Jewish students were supposed to room together, why lesbians weren't allowed to be admitted, things like that. So I I, I like to think that she, you know, she definitely, again, saw herself as a troublemaker, whether or not she did enough on behalf of people of color, you know, I, I don't know. I, I hope that, you know, her legacy will, will represent something positive, but it's a hard question to, to answer. What do you think she would have made of the Me Too movement, particularly in relation to its impact in Hollywood around the Weinstein case, et cetera? Mm-hmm. It's it's another tough one to answer because she's not here, you know. So I wouldn't want to to even venture to guess. I think she would have had something witty and smart to say that none of us thought of. I think like you said she definitely thought of herself first and foremost as an observer, as a journalist. I'm here to document what's happening and again just by virtue of being here to document what's happening is a part of social justice, you know? And so I think she definitely felt that as a reporter. Once she fell in love with Nick Pileggi and and uh, moved into some of her later movies, you know, I don't know how much that was on her mind, but I think that she was always an advocate for free speech. She was an, always a, a an advocate for Penn USA, the, you know, organization that supports writers and journalists. And so I think that she would have connected with the idea of being a survivor. I don't think she would have connected with the idea of being a victim. That was just not something that she personally believed. And part of that's generational. You know, that was part Mm -hmm. of that generation was like, 
well, we've all gone through it. So what's your problem? You know, kind of thing. I didn't realize until you pointed it out, another juicy detail in your book that she has a walk-on part or a cameo in Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors. And of course, she shares with him a great love of New York and a great desire to celebrate New York in her films. What was their relationship? Um, hard to say. I think they were friends. I think they they were friends. I think they admired each other's work, like you said. She talks a lot about how all romantic comedy comes from either Taming of the Shrew or from uh, Annie Hall. <laughs> so, I mean, she definitely <laughs> felt like the, you know, the neurotic Jewish male, you know, protagonist was interesting, you know, and it, of course, influenced when Harry met Sally. But, uh, but yeah, I think they were, I think they were friends and colleagues. And when it comes to the New York that she shows in her films, is it a different part of New York to the part that he shows us? I mean, is she more uptown, midtown, downtown? Where does she locate her stories? Mm. Upper West Side for a long time until she abandoned the Apthorpe when, you know, the prices became outrageous. And that's the building where she lived. That's right. That's right. And and it was beloved. And so, yeah, that was her neighborhood. She really felt like New York was all of these tiny villages where you have people who know each other and care about each other. And that was really what she wanted. You've got mail to to portray. I think her New York is a place of intelligence, of opportunity for women. You know, she talks about being a little girl in in Beverly Hills in preschool and thinking to herself, what are all these blonde, happy children doing around me? These people don't get it, you know. So I think she she <laughs> never, she never, uh, for, for as much as she was of Hollywood, she never, of course, thought of herself that way. She was very much a New Yorker who was forced out, basically, when her parents went to Hollywood. So I think for her, New York is is home, you know. Yeah. But it's a, it's a New York which is characterized by walking through Central Park, going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, going to beautiful bookshops and good delis. I mean, it's very much the kind of, in a way, you could say that that is a kind of, cliche of New York that it's not it's not the fringes it's not the boundaries it's not Bed-Stuy it's not the outer suburbs is it mm. yeah and is it a cliche because she made it one I don't know you know like Cat's Deli is now iconic but like they wanted to be at Carnegie Deli and they said no so they ended up at Cat's Deli you know so I don't know I mean that's what I mean it's so she's so ingrained in culture now that it's hard to say what we imagine as New York, you know, quintessential New York. Is that Nora's New York? Is it Woody Allen's? Is it someone else's? I don't know. She was regarded by friends as the greatest food orderer that ever lived. I think that's a quote from producer Linda Obst. Can you just talk a little bit about the role of food in her work and in her life? Sure. Food was, as she said, a, a a way of having time travel. You know, she felt very connected to her mother through food. I think she felt very connected to, again, just the the culture. Like you said, her her favorite cheese store, her favorite places to get things in New York were all so specific. And naturally, any movie set that she was on, whether it was Seattle or here in Los Angeles, she was constantly on a mission. 
So what is the best? <laughs> what is the best pastrami sandwich? Where is it? How do you order it? You know, what things do you ask for on the side? All of that. And then how many people can I tell about this? So they all enjoy it as well. <laughs> so there's some great stories in the book about that, about the, you know, pie contest followed up by another pie, you know, like just, just the amount, the sheer amount of just incredible food. And it was as much to her about filmmaking as it was about like enjoying each other's company, talking, getting to, you know, break bread together, that kind of thing. Yeah, it does sound at times as if, you know, the film was almost secondary to the catering and it was kind of like, let's go and make a film in Paris because of where we'll be able to eat. It sounded as if she wasn't necessarily the strictest controller of the budget and that she was quite extravagant in the way she wanted to buy everybody, cast and crew, you know, wonderful meals, wonderful lunches or have great pastries brought onto the set. Absolutely. I think she, on the contrary, she was exceptional at managing her budget. She was always on time and on budget. However, she would argue that those things were necessary. I don't know. It brings up a good question. You know, was it coming out of her own pocket? I don't know. I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what, what line item she had the food under, but I can tell you that any and every person on that cast and crew had a wonderful time. And it, and to your point, she, she felt that that was part of the filmmaking. She said, if we're not having fun, then what is the point? And, and, and yes, like the business always, you know, like she took her budgets very seriously. She was very aware that she was fortunate to have these, you know, big budgets. And even when they were small, like, how am I going to take care of them? Make, you know, make the most out of it. There's this great line that she says about someone mentioning early on with Julie and Julia not to film it in Paris, that they could just go to Montreal or something. And she said, I just pretended not to hear it. <laughs> it's like, she just wasn't even going to give that any credence, you know, like, we're not going to make a movie about Julia Child in Paris that's not in Paris, period. And that's what makes me Nora Ephron, you know, <laughs> so... Well, and I have to say I'm with her on that. But the annoying thing is no matter how much she ate, she never got fat. It's true. It's true. She she would take one bite of something and then have everyone else eat it. So they're all gaining, you know, 15 and 20 pounds on each movie and she's saying the same. So, yeah, she's uh, she's interesting. She liked to order, you know, several things and then just take a few bites of each one. I'm going to ask you a really superficial, really Hollywood question now. Mm -hmm. Did she have work done? Did she have plastic surgery? Did she have any Botox fillers? Was she vain? Was she very preoccupied with her appearance? Uh, I think she was definitely of a generation of women who felt that her appearance was very important. I think she took a lot of pride in being, you know, very buttoned up and polished, you know, always had very nice clothes and jewelry and her hair and makeup done. I think uh, she talks quite openly about that in her, her last two books about maintenance and... Uh, well, about her neck. I worry about my neck. I mean, that has to be one of my most <laughs> favorite um, yes. titles of all time. And and yes, the, the uses of the black turtleneck, which of course was... Like with Steve Jobs, it was kind of her uniform, yes. wasn't it? And it hid a multitude of sins. But I actually wondered whether she'd gone further than scarf wearing and turtlenecks. Yeah, I think she talks about uh, wrestling injections. And I believe that was as far as she had gone. I don't, I don't know that she had done Botox or anything. But I don't think she was 
like trying to hide it per se. You know, she felt like this is, and again, this is with the eye of a curious journalist, like, why do we feel like we have to do this, you know? And also, I still feel like I need to do this, that kind of thing. She really, in her capacity for friendship, which was just enormous, she seems to have had the ability to be friends with men as much as with women. I mean, not just collaborators, but she had really close male friends who were not exes. People like Mike Nichols, for example. I mean, there are lots of them that you mention in the book, but but. What do you think this friendship with men tells us about Nora? Mm. She she really admired strength. And I think she really appreciated that about men. She also said in this interview in the 90s that she loved that about women, you know, like the male trait of strength. (laughs) That's how she put it. So I think... But isn't the point there... Another point, it's just occurred to me, which is that her films do a great service to men's emotions and that, in fact, these rom-coms which women love, they love partly because they show us male vulnerability in a way that we haven't seen before. Absolutely, absolutely. And and like you said, it's it's hard today to see that because now she set the precedent for it. But again, that was not really not really being done. I mean, Sleepless in Seattle being a man's movie. I love that quote from Linda because you're like, huh, you know, and then now when I see it, that's all I see is the father and the son trying to deal with, you know, loss and grief and how do you keep going and all of that, which again, manages to somehow be funny. And so I think that's really a gift, you know, like you said, to be able to capture how women really are and also how men really are, and that it isn't just in our imagination that they're sensitive, that they really are and can be. So that suggests to me that maybe what she loved, actually, Kristen, was strong women and vulnerable men, but men who were vulnerable and and comfortable with that. You, they knew how to be at ease with themselves. Maybe those were the kinds of men that really attracted her. Absolutely. And I think Nick is the epitome of that. I think that she had various reasons for falling in love with and marrying each of her husbands at the time. Dan Greenberg, who was who was kind enough to talk to me and share a lot of his memories and also archives and photos and letters and things. And of course, Carl Bernstein, with whom she has her two her two sons, and then with Nick Pelleggi. And I think what comes through in Julie and Julia is definitely her concept of a lasting marriage, the, the longest marriage, which was for 25 years with Nick. And, and that is someone who is just so secure in themselves that they're genuinely happy to see their wives succeed. And she said, I would be accused of making this up, except for that really was how Paul Child, what that really was, how Julia Child, how her marriage was. And so that I think is something so cool to hold on to, which is, I had a student saying to me yesterday, she said, Julia and Julia is kind of boring, but in a good way. And and that's what Nora said, you know, she said, that's the absence of plot, you know, there is no adultery, there is no, it's just, they just love being together and, and supporting each other. And so um, that's kind of what we're left with, you know, that ended up being her last film. So it is really a gift, like you said, to realize both people can be vulnerable and strong at the same time. I wonder whether you think that nowadays, one of the things that Nora may have caused unwittingly is the idea for writers that 
anything and everything that's personal to them must be interesting and shareable with the rest of the world. That that everybody now is trying to imitate that that really unmistakable voice, and they think that they can do it by, I suppose, what you would say in America is just kind of oversharing the most intimate personal details where you think, who are you and why should I care about you? Do you think that there is a little bit of that? Part of her genius was that she made it look easy. And that's confusing because it was not. She spent (laughs) hours and hours and hundreds of pages on her leads wanting to get them just right. And honestly, I think some of those things were easy to her, you know, but it wasn't for lack of, and again, that was a great memory to hear about too from, from her friends was just how devoted she was to her writing, you know, that every single day she was writing, she was practicing, she was trying to get it right. And of course, again, just a voracious reader. So it would be a mistake, like you said, to think, oh, I could just, she's just putting out there everything so I could do that. Yeah, that's not really it. Nor Efron has influenced a new generation of writers, according to Kristen, from Lena Dunham, whom she mentored personally, to Jason Sudeikis on Ted Lasso. Now, I'm not sure I see that last one, but I do think that she is still the benchmark for the successful rom-com and that the genre is much more difficult than she made it look. I would love to have known her reaction to the Me Too movement as a feminist, but one with unpredictable opinions. Kristin Deutsch does not speculate on that. In other biography news, I would have liked to interview curator, gallerist and author Angus Trumbull about his new biography of Helena Rubinstein, her Melbourne years and the famous portrait of her by Graham Sutherland. But sadly, he died on completing the manuscript in 2022. The biography has a wonderful foreword by Sarah Krasnerstein and is out now. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to elders and storytellers past and present. This episode of Life Sentences was made with a grant from Create New South Wales, and I would like to acknowledge their generosity. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown.